All right, it's good to be with you guys. Um, if you're new to Solano, um, and I think some of you might be, we've got a lot of new people coming, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, what we usually do here is we walk through books of the Bible. Um, so Pastor Dante recently preached a series on the last chapter of the book of Luke, and next week, Pastor Hoffman is going to start on our new series on the book of Acts, which we're going to be in all the way through the fall and into the spring, uh, which is really exciting. Um, so what I want to do today is build a little bit of a bridge between the last chapter of Luke and the first chapter of Acts. Both of these books were written by Luke, um, and by, by words, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. Most people think it was Paul. Paul wrote more books, but by volume of words, Luke actually wrote the most, and he's a first-rate historian. Uh, and he's, so he's gifted us this amazing story of the life of Jesus and then the, the life of the early church. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend some time today looking at the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. So if you've got your, if you've got your Bible with you or your, your device with your Bible app, um, we're going to be in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, um, if you raise your hand, we will give you a Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take it um, so that you can read this and have it. So before I launch into that, let me take a minute to set this up. So at this point in history, Jesus has been crucified three days later. He rose from the dead, and he was first seen alive by his mother, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and some of the other women who were in the larger group of disciples who were following Jesus. They went to the tomb, and they were there with their spices and their fragrances to dress the body, and when they got there, the, the stone was rolled away. And they went in, and it was empty, and there was an angel there, and then Jesus appeared to them which completely freaked them out. They didn't know what to think about all that because he had this heavenly glorified body and they didn't even recognize him. And he said, it's me, don't be afraid. And he told them, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee at the place where I told them to meet me. And that's where we picked this story up. So let's read Matthew 28, 16 through 20 together. It's up here also, I think. I think we got a slide. There you go. All right, this is from the English Standard Version. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is one of the best known passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. Um, many of you probably have in your Bible, there's a caption over this section of Scripture that says the Great Commission. The, the phrase the Great Commission is not actually used in the Bible, but it's definitely an apt description of this Scripture. Jesus is definitely being very directive here. He's telling somebody to do something. Um, I was driving in this morning, and I was on the 580 coming over from Richmond, and 
I saw this billboard I hadn't noticed before, and it was for this cosmetic surgery clinic. Yeah, right? And so you got this really pretty lady on there, you know, and there's wind in her hair or whatever. But anyways, so it says, look better, feel better. And, I, and it just occurred to me, what if we had a soul surgery clinic? And at this clinic, we could give you something that wouldn't change the way you look, but it would change you your very essence, that would guarantee you that someday you would go to heaven and have a glorified body that no plastic surgeon could ever give you. Jesus has given us that, and he's told us right here in this passage of Scripture to share it with people, to, to go open the soul surgery clinic, if you will. So what is he saying do? There are four commands here. One is go. Two is make disciples, three is baptize them, and four is teach them to do what I commanded, and what he commanded includes go and make disciples, right? So today, I want to zero in on the first two parts of this great commission, the command to go and the command to make disciples. Uh, I want to make the case today that these words are aimed at us individually and together as a church. I hope that you'll give me a fair hearing on this, but I also want you to test what I'm saying against the whole scripture. I think it would do you a lot of good, actually, to test what I'm saying here. Open up the Bible yourself and be satisfied. I expect many of you, like me, whenever somebody tells you to do something, you got a lot of questions. I'm a lawyer, or I used to be anyway. Um, but I guess once a lawyer, always a lawyer. Like, maybe I'm a recovering attorney. Uh, um, but anyways, I like to cross-examine people. Mike and Tanya, my wife, would attest to that. So when people tell me to do something, I have lots of questions. And sometimes what I'm trying to do is just figure out, do you really mean what you said? And sometimes I'm just trying to get out of doing it, whatever it is. But sometimes I just want to understand the why, where, who, what, when, so I can do it well. So today we're going to assume that Jesus meant what he said, and we're not going to fight it. We're going to dig into the who, what, where, when, and why of the Great Commission. Um, I think when we read the Great Commission, if we take it personally, and we should, it's going to cause us to ask a lot of questions. So I want to answer those questions today. So I'm going I'm to take this apart a little bit at a time, um, and see if I can help us understand a little bit more about how this applies to us. Because I think the difference, I think the answers to these questions can be the difference between a wasted life or a life that glorifies God. It can be the difference between a church that is faithful or not. Um, so let me, let's, let's take a look at what the questions are here that come to mind when we read the Great Commission. The first question to me comes out of the English Standard Version of the commission says, go and make disciples. So the first question I have is, go where? I'm supposed to go. Okay, where am I supposed to go? Should I, can I make disciples here? Should I go to another part of the country and make disciples? Should I go to another country entirely and to an unreached people group and make disciples? I think the answer to those questions is yes. Do all that. Y'all should do all that. Go 
stay, make disciples everywhere. We should make disciples here, there, and everywhere. The word that's translated as go in the ESV actually means going or having gone in the original Greek. So while you're going, wherever you go, until he sends you somewhere else, make disciples. So while you're in California, make disciples. If God sends you to Calcutta, make disciples. Pretty clear. Acts 1.8 tells, Jesus tells his disciples this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were. And in all Judea and Samaria, where they often went. And to the end of the earth, where they had not yet gone. So in other words, disciples of Jesus should be witnesses where you are, where you go, and wherever Jesus sends you. Listen, Jesus may have us, but he's not done yet. We shouldn't let ourselves think that Jesus is somehow done because America is a Christian nation. First of all, it's not. never really was. Um, There have been a lot of Christians in America down through the years, but it's false to say that a country is Christian or that Jesus is done with us. There's lots more work to do. If there wasn't, Jesus would have come back already, right? Jesus said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Amen, right? One flock, one shepherd, all nations. If you're looking for a life verse, there it is. In all of God's arrangements, it's very interesting when you look at how he relates to humanity. He is very global in his thinking, far more than we are. Um, In Genesis 1, before the fall, God made Adam and Eve, and then he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the whole thing. God wasn't just creating two people. He was creating a people for himself, for the whole world. Later, when God made his covenant with Abraham, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God isn't just making a people to bless those people. He's making a people for the good of all peoples of the earth. And that's us. We're those people. So what does it mean to make disciples? Mark 10 or Mark 16, 15 through 16 says, Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. In Luke 24, 46 through 48, Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
In Acts 1.8, again, Jesus says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I think taken together, all of these different ways of talking about the Great Commission make it clear that our part in making disciples is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and bearing witness to Jesus. Proclamation and bearing witness. In other words, Christians should preach and teach, and disciples then are made when the Holy Spirit enables people to believe and be transformed by the truth that we share about Jesus. We preach and teach. The Holy Spirit moves, and people believe. That's how disciples are made. The next question I had when I was wrestling with this is, who should make disciples? Who's supposed to do this? Some people have argued that this, this great commission was actually only aimed at the people who were present when Jesus spoke these words, which I think is ridiculous. But let's, let's take that apart for a minute. For one, we know that Paul did not take it that way. Paul was not present when Jesus gave the great commission. He was still persecuting Christians or was about to. He was a Pharisee. He hated Christians. And then later, when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and he was converted, he went away for three years and prepared for a gospel mission to the Gentiles. And then he spent the rest of his life on that ministry. And along the way, he made many other disciples into disciple makers and sent them out to continue the ministry. And we're talking about the greatest evangelist who ever lived, and he wasn't there when Jesus gave this commission. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, I think he made it really clear that the Great Commission isn't just aimed at capital A apostles, right? There he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation to us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Where do ambassadors live? Like the, the U.S. ambassador to China. Does he live in Washington, D.C.? No. The U.S. ambassador to China lives in Beijing. We are God's ambassadors, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ in the world. And we go where he sends. We go where the lost are, where we need to represent Jesus as his ambassadors. The fact that we are saved ourselves, that we could call ourselves Christians, the fact that we are going to escape an eternity in hell, all of us in this room who are saved, is because previous generations of disciples took the Great Commission personally. They made disciples so that we could have this truth, so that we could have this inheritance. Who here doesn't want the next generation to enjoy the same thing? If we do, then we need to get busy making disciples so that there will be disciples when that next generation gets here to teach them the truth of the gospel. So if this command is meant for any of the disciples who weren't present when Jesus spoke these words, then it's meant for all disciples, including us.
So when I say that we've been commissioned, I mean all of us have been commissioned. And not just those who have the gift of evangelism. There is such a thing as a gift of evangelism, no doubt about it. Um, some people have it, some people don't, right? You might be really good at evangelism, you might be awful at it, you know? Um, and if you're not one of the people who's gifted with the gift of evangelism, you might be thinking that if God wanted me to share the gospel with people, he would have given me the gift of evangelism. And that's a rational way to think about it, a logical kind of thing to say, um, if your being really good at it was the difference. If, if your ability to share the gospel really well was the difference, but it's not. The Holy Spirit is the difference maker. You get that? You don't have to be awesome at it. Thank God. It would have died a long time ago. But the Holy Spirit empowers us to share the gospel with people and gives it the effect that it should have. Jesus knew this. He gave his disciples the Great Commission, and he also promised them the Holy Spirit that would come and, and descend upon them and fill their hearts and enable them to do what he told them to do. The last thing I'd say about who is supposed to carry out the Great Commission is that it's not just something that we do as individuals. Making of disciples is also something that we do together as a church. In every account of the Great Commission, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's talking to all of them together as a body. Subsequent church history uh, recorded in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, shows all the disciples working together in churches to spread the gospel. At Solano Community Church, I can tell you right now, without reservation, that we are fully committed to the Great Commission. It's our reason for existence. It's why we're here. We have some decisions ahead of us as a church um, that are going to test our commitment to multiplication through evangelism, uh, church planting, new ministries. Um, Pastor Hoffman is going to be talking to us in the fall about what some of that looks like. Um, I, I think it's absolutely perfect timing that he's going to be going, that we are going to be going through the book of Acts at the same time that we're presented with many of the same challenges and opportunities that the church was presented with in Acts. It's not a coincidence. We are living every single minute in God's perfect timing. He laid this book on Pastor Hoffman's heart knowing exactly what we were going to be doing, the choices we were going to get to make and the things we were going to have the opportunity to do in the next year and, and actually well beyond that into 2020. Um, and I can't wait for you guys to hear about what that looks like um, and to get really excited about the vision for sharing the gospel here in the East Bay. Um, it's, it's an awesome thing to think about. Um, and when we see what God is doing, it should fill us with greater boldness to share the gospel. God is in it, and he is in us. Amen. So the next question is, if you're, if you're down with the idea of, okay, it's me, I'm supposed to do this, um, and I have some sense of where I might do it, and I have some people on my mind, too, about who I want to share the gospel with, the question on your mind now is, how do I do that? 
right? This, this sounds like one of those things that's way easier to say than it is to do. So the next question really for me was, how do I bear witness to Jesus? How do I proclaim the gospel? Well, mainly we do it in words and deeds, but mostly in words. Um, I'm going to go out of limb here and say that I think it's a terrible extravagance to think that we can just be awesome, expect people to see how awesome we are, and ask us why we're so awesome. Right? I mean, look, I'll admit that theoretically could happen. Um, it's possible. If we polled everyone in the room, there might be some anecdotal examples of this where somebody saw you do something unusual and they ask you, hey, man, what's that about? Why are you like that? And it created an opportunity. Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It may happen, so be ready. But there are two problems with this, what I would call passive approach to evangelism. The first is the overwhelming majority of people who need to hear the gospel won't ask. They just won't ask. I mean, if we're honest, it's super rare to be asked about your faith. We live in a, an increasingly secular society. And what that means is that your faith and mine has been evicted from the public square. Most people don't want to hear about your faith. So it's increasingly unlikely, frankly, that they would ask you about it. More than that, for everyone who asks, thousands don't. For everyone who asks, thousands don't. And every single human matters. It is God's desire that everyone should be saved. And their eternity is at stake. We should not sit back and just hope people will ask. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's nothing passive there. Patient, yes. Passive, no. Hold on to that thought. Patient, but not passive when it comes to evangelism. We're going to come back to that. It's really important. The second problem I have with passive evangelism is that, frankly, it's really hard to stand out by doing good and being really good. We live in a do-gooder culture. That's part of what it's like here in the Bay Area in particular. Um, I, I, it was something that we noticed when we first moved here. Um, I constantly behind people with bumper stickers all over their cars, you know, with all these ideas and statements of, of belief. And, you know, it seems like every single choice that people made had some moral dimension to it. And somebody was ar arguing for it all the time. So we live in that kind of culture. I think probably within a stone's throw of this place, there is a Buddhist who is better at self-control and better at resisting temptation than anybody in this room. There are humanistic atheists in this community who do more good for the poor and the orphan and the sojourner 
than any of us. Look, it's really important for us as a church and as individuals to do good works. It's part of what we're here to do. But just doing good works isn't going to be enough. It's not enough. If we're going to make disciples, people still need to know why are we doing what we're doing. And that means we have to tell them. We have to open up our mouths and say, I'm here to minister to these people because I love them. And I love them because Jesus loves me. Or I'm here doing what I'm doing because Jesus loves me even though I don't deserve it. And he loves you too. Of all the things you could do with your life, nothing will be as meaningful as telling people about Jesus. So whatever you do, do it for Jesus, and while you're at it, make sure to tell people about Jesus. If I could make one plea, it would be this. Don't wait for someone to ask you. Steer the conversation. Look for the opportunity, or even create the opportunity to just tell people. Look, let's get real for a minute. If you want to tell somebody about something really awesome that you did or that happened to you, you will find a way to steer the conversation there. In the course of our life, we become experts at that, right? We're so good at it, we can do it without people knowing we're doing it. And all I'm suggesting is use those powers for good. Use those powers for the ultimate good. You absolutely can do this. To do it really well, we need to understand why we do it. Why make disciples? I mean, of course, there's the obvious reason, because Jesus said to, right? And that is, without a doubt, good enough reason to do anything if Jesus says do it. But there's something about understanding why Jesus has given us the Great Commission that I think is going to make us more effective in sharing our witness for Christ. Um, there's just something about knowing why you're doing a thing that makes you better at it. Um, it, it reminded me of uh, when I was, in, I was a history and uh, political science major in college, and uh, we studied the American Revolution. Um, and there was this general, this actually was a, a Prussian military officer named Baron Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. You guys all know him, right? Hey, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, so like this guy, if you go to Washington, D.C., and you're at the White House, just right by the White House is Lafayette Square. And at, on each corner of the square, there's a statue, and one of those statues is this guy. So he was an excellent military officer in the Prussian Army, which was legendary for its discipline on and off the battlefield, and so they were very effective. And so this guy volunteered his services to General Washington to train the Continental Army at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. Um, and so Washington said, sure, or whatever, you know, do what you can. And so he came, and um, it was a tough winter of 77, 1777, where you know, there was a lot of people died of um, malnutrition, and I mean, it was a huge winter snow that year. 
and a lot of people froze. But this guy is steadily drilling them and teaching them how to be soldiers the whole time through all of that. And here's what he said after doing that. He said, in Prussia, you say to your soldier, do this, and he does it. But I'm obliged to say to the American, this is why you ought to do this, and then he does it. Something about us makes us need to know why we're going to do a thing before we do it. We're just like that, I guess. Some things never change. I think we're still like that. But I also think that it's one of the reasons why, if we really understand this and really get under the hood of the Great Commission and why we're supposed to do this, it will make us far more effective as a witness for Jesus. As with most commands that God gives, the reason for the command is love. Love. Love for God and love of our neighbor. I'm convinced that the Great Commission actually flows out of the Great Command. The Great Command in Matthew 22, 37 through 39 goes like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's something that happens to you when you become a Christian. You grow in love for Jesus because he died for you when you didn't deserve it. And then the Holy Spirit starts to transform your heart and you begin to grow in love for other people because you start to realize, hey, they're no worse than me. They're no worse than I was. And Jesus died for them too. The more we love our neighbors, the more we want to share the gospel with them. If we love people and really come to grips with where they are headed, there's no way we can be still or be silent. Let me take a minute to frame up what's at stake here. There are 7.6 billion people on the earth. That's a lot. Roughly 2.2 billion of them call themselves Christians. So even if we assume that all 2.2 billion are really disciples of Jesus, there's 5.4 billion people in the world that are not Christians. Almost 2 billion of them have never heard the name of Jesus. 60 million people die every year on the earth. And the vast majority of them are not believers in the saving grace of Jesus. I think the statistics percentage-wise are probably worse than the Bay Area, where less than 5% of the people here claim any religious affiliation at all. So 5.4 billion people need Jesus because they're lost in their sin and the road that they are on leads to death. A couple million of those people live in the Bay Area. If we love them even a little, we'll be moved to throw ourselves between them and the place that they are headed. Galatians 5, 13 through 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we love the lost at all, we'll tell them about Jesus. And that starts by helping people see why they need Jesus. No one can come to a true saving faith in Jesus until they come to terms with their own sin 
and why they need the saving grace of Jesus in the first place. This is the sticky part, right? Talking to people about their sin is hard. It's really hard. Because it's not nice. It could cause us to violate the 11th commandment. You guys know that one? Thou shalt not offend anyone ever. I'm, I'm afraid I break this one all the time accidentally. You know, seriously. In a culture where tolerance is enforced with absolute intolerance, it's tricky to tell someone that they're a wretched sinner. Nevertheless, we need to help people see themselves as they really are compared to a perfect holy God. Talking to people about their sin is hard because most people think they're good. And that being good is enough. We have to cultivate the ability to help people see that they are not good enough to earn salvation. I once saw Francis Chan illustrate this really well. And if I can get four volunteers to come up, we're, I'm going to recreate that illustration right now. Four, four guys, four, four volunteers, anybody? We got anybody? Come on, come on, guys. Tanya, come up. <laughs> guys, you guys, come on up. You won't have to do anything but stand here, I promise. It'll be painless. Yeah. So, I'm going to put these signs right here. One of them says, not good enough for heaven. And the other one says, good enough for heaven. So everybody on your right is good enough to go to heaven. And everybody on the left is not good enough to go to heaven. Okay? All right. We need one more volunteer. How about you, young man? Will you volunteer? You'll get the best part, I promise. No. <laughs> All right, one more volunteer, please. Hey, Paul, come on. And just for that, you get to have the best part. Today, Paul is going to play the part of God. Right? <laughs> so if Paul is God, on which side of this line does he go? Right? Left, right? Who says right? Okay. Paul goes on the right side of the line. So Paul, you go over there. That's our left. They're right. Yeah, thank you. Um, so how far over to the right should he go? All, all the way? Like all the way over to the, all the way to the wall then. Thank you, Paul. Okay. All right. That's great. All right. All right. What's your name? Daniel. Daniel? I, um, I'm really sorry. Uh, I just want to apologize in advance. But to, for the next two minutes, you're going to get to play the part of Hitler. <laughs> Isn't that awful? All right, so where should Hitler go? On which side? Way over here to the left. All right, so how far? Uh, he says outside the building. No, just stay inside. <laughs> All the way to the wall. That's right. That's exactly right. Now it gets harder, right? Because this, are, this is easy, right? That's clear black and white. But now, what's your name? Fadi. You, today, you are Mahatma Gandhi. That's not bad, is it? Which side of the line is Gandhi on, right or left? Good enough to go to heaven. Left. Okay, come over here then. 
Gandhi. Don't, don't go too far, like, like just barely on, there you go, right there. That's good, right? He's close to the line, don't you think? Okay. <laughs> All right, well, now it gets really tricky. Tanya is Mother Teresa. Now, I want to remind you, we're not deciding who's in heaven and who's not. Who is good enough to go to heaven? So which side of the line does Mother Teresa belong on? Some say left? Left? Any rights? Left is the answer. Left is the answer. Right here. Maybe, maybe just right there, right, there, right next to it. There you go. Right, just on this side of Gandhi, maybe. So again, the point is not whether Mother Teresa is in heaven. Mother Teresa may be in heaven, but if she's in heaven, it's not because she was good enough. It's because of Jesus. Jesus did it. All the people on this side of the line, there may be varying degrees of good and evil between them, but the real difference is the holiness of God. That's the dividing line. That's the standard. Not, am I better than other people? But how do I compare to a perfect, holy, righteous God? That's the difference between. Now, I want you to be clear about this. I'm not saying that you should be as good as God, because you can't. I'm saying you don't have to be. And that's the great, fantastic, excellent, good news that we get to share with people. They don't have to try to be good enough. Get off, get off that hamster wheel. It's crazy out there trying to be good all the time. Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. Thanks, guys, for volunteering. Everybody, thank you. All right. That's awesome. Thanks. Good sports there, right? <laughs> so, these distinctions that we have between people um, are what lawyers call a non sequitur, which means a distinction that makes no difference. The, the real difference is the distinction between fallen humanity and the perfect holy God who made us, sent his son to redeem us in spite of our open rebellion. Um, and this is the point that we have to make with people who believe that they are heaven bound because they think they're good. They may be good, but perfection is the standard. And no one is perfect. So the key here, I want you to hear me, is not condemnation of people because of their sin. God, for who he is, perfect, holy, loving God, who wants to break through, that's the key to making disciples. Now, you can't see the perfect, holy God for who he is without realizing how far from him you are. And he's made a way to bridge the gap. This leads me to my, what I think is the main reason for uh, the Great Commission. The main reason why we want to share the gospel with people is because God is holy and perfect, and we want to do this for his glory. We want God to be worshipped for who he is. Saving humanity 
is not an end in itself. God's glory is the point. That's the main reason for sharing the gospel with people, so they can be saved for the glory of God. The gospel itself, frankly, tells us more about the magnificence of God than anything else we can comprehend. I mean, think about it for a minute. This God who descended from heaven, took on human form, lived the perfect life, died and rose again to rescue us from our open rebellion against him. Who does that? Who does that? Only God does that. He's worthy of glory, and we want people to know him and to worship him the way we do. Here's what John Piper says about the purpose of missions in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. He's absolutely right. We have to be careful about thinking about the gospel as man-centered. Yes, we want everyone to be saved. The reason we want everyone to be saved is because we want them to be with God forever to his glory in eternity. The glory of God is the point, and it's also the way to salvation. So if you look at the answers to all these questions together, here's what I think the Great Commission means. Every Christian and every Christian church is called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in words and deeds with everyone, everywhere, through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. To say that again, every Christian and every Christian church is called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in words and deeds with everyone, everywhere, through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. So I have one question for you guys. How's your witness? Um, it's been a tough week for me, having to dig really deep and think about the Great Commission and how many people there are in the world who are lost, and then have to think about how I spend my time. Um, I was having lunch with Pastor Hobbin this week, and we were talking about how many interests I have. I have a lot of hobbies. I'm a hobby guy. Um, I, I'm into motorcycles, I'm into old cars, I make furniture, I do all this other stuff. And between work and spending time with Tanya and all of my hobbies and all this other stuff, that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for getting to know my neighbor, getting to know them well enough so that I could speak into their situation, the truth of the gospel. I hope that you'll spend some time this week praying about this and thinking about the people who are in your life the people that you're encountering every single day who need to know the truth of the gospel.
if we were on fire for the gospel, this church here could transform the Bay Area for the glory of God. We could do it. Um, And it's my great prayer and honest plea to you that you will consider how you can spend your time on the things that matter most. And nothing matters more than sharing the gospel with the lost people of the Bay Area. Let me pray that we will do that. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, first of all, Lord, for the saving grace of Jesus. Um, We just can't be grateful enough. It's overwhelming. Um, Lord, we want everyone to be saved. We know it is your desire for all men to be saved. Um, And Lord, we just thank you for using us, for letting us play a part in that, for having a stake in that big game, the, the, the cosmic game. It's not a game, it's the reality, the thing that we're all working toward. Um, and Lord, we just, we just thank, thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit and, and also given us the scriptures so that we can know you better and, and really understand your nature and understand our need for you and be transformed. Um, Lord, I pray that everyone here this week will have the time to spend communing with you in prayer and in your word, and that in so doing they would be transformed into disciple makers, disciple makers for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.